Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Playing It Safe podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And today I am sharing with you part two of my conversation with Dr. David Barlow. If you listen to part one of this conversation, you know that it's focused on process-based cognitive behavior therapy. And today, in this episode, you will hear more about what is process-based CBT. Before listening to this episode, I will invite you to consider this fact. Depression co-occurs with anxiety 60% of the time. So. If you are anxious, you're also likely to be depressed. Now, you may wonder why these two different emotional struggles show up together. And the answer is that many of the same processes behind depression and behind anxiety are the same. And within process-based cognitive behavior therapy, the treatment focuses on those processes. There are different models to understand process-based therapy. Dr. Barlow, in this conversation, and also in part one, he's describing the model that he proposed years ago. His model is called the Unified Protocol, UP. I hope you find this conversation helpful, and I also hope that it gives you an idea of how cognitive behavior therapy is evolving. In another episode, I am going to share with you in detail how acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment skills is by nature a process-based therapy. And before we jump into the episode, if you are a high achiever, a doer, a maker, a go-getter, and a person that is prone to perfectionistic, high achieving and striving actions, you may want to reflect and understand better these behavioral patterns. And if you want to do so, you can go to the website www.thisisdrz.com and download 10 worksheets to reflect, unpack, and understand how those perfectionistic actions look in different areas of your life, what's driving them, and how they are working or affecting your life. So again, just go to the website www.thisisdrz.com. I wish you a great week and let's jump into the episode. 
If I can ask a little bit more, at that time when you were working and publishing the Unified Protocol, there were also other groups considering transdiagnostic processes, trying to look at these commonalities across disorders, across anxiety, across depression. Um, There was a book published by Harvey in 2004, looking at the processes behind sleeping struggles and emotional disorders. Robert Leahy in 2002 was also talking about the 14 dimensions behind emotional schemas. Uh, People were looking at emotional regulation as another transdiagnostic process. But I think different groups were conceptualizing how this may look. So my question will be, if you think about the way that you study what's behind the unified protocol and you identify this commonalities across disorders, how would you define today what is a transdiagnostic process based on your experience, based on your approach, based on your lenses? Right. Well, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good uh, question. And a lot of people are very interested in it. And we have our own conception. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that there's a lot of procedures, interventions, if you like, that you could call transdiagnostic, if only because they're used to treat a number of different diagnoses. Yeah. So, for example, uh, medications mm-hmm. that we call SSRI uh, medications, which typically antidepressants. Well, those are transdiagnostic because they used to treat not only depression, but panic disorders, social, all the anxiety disorders and some of the other emotional disorders. Mm-hmm. But um, why they work is not clear. Mm-hmm. Nobody still, even the, you know, our best neuroscientists and uh, uh, biological psychiatrists have not quite figured out why they work yet. So it, it's kind of something that seems to be effective for, for a lot of people. And we know that also, the effects um, aren't uh, enduring. That is, when you discontinue the medications, uh, most people are prone to have a recurrence of their emotional disorder. There's other techniques. I mean, you could consider relaxation. Well, mm-hmm. everyone could use a little, you know, calming once in a while, meditation, mindfulness, relaxation. So you can consider that transdiagnostic. But none of these procedures in our view, really identify the underlying cause mm-hmm. of these disorders. Mm-hmm. What is the cause? And again, sometimes that cause is called a process. What is the process you know, underlying this condition and how can you attack it directly? Mm-hmm. We think that functional relationship whereby we can see the strong negative emotion Mm -hmm. Then look back at the antecedents, we call antecedents, Mm -hmm. what comes before it, Mm -hmm. what triggers it, Mm -hmm. and then look at what we call the consequence, how do people attempt to cope with it? Mm -hmm. And we think the disorder, the pathology, as we call it, lies in that functional relationship, that tendency to deal inappropriately with strong emotions triggered by one thing or another. We're less concerned with the trigger, more concerned with how they handle the negative emotion. So there are various sort of uh, uh, 
multi-level sort of ways to consider it. So mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Christopher Fairburn in yeah. the UK came up with a transdiagnostic process for eating disorders. Yes. I'm that was really specifically applied to eating disorders. And what he discovered was that all eating disorders, all certainly all you know, bulimia, binge eating, et cetera, uh, and some anorexia, some of the anorexia, had at its base distorted self-images. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Images that, particularly among young women, uh, predominantly that they're overweight and ugly and they had to lose weight. You know? So they have, have this distorted body image. Mm -hmm. And then they would engage, what would they do? They would engage in a number of avoidant or you know, uh, escape behaviors to try to lose that weight. Mm -hmm. That would include uh, purging and sometimes laxatives and uh, uh, ex, you know, uh, excessive exercise, all manner of things. But see, the functional relationship is the same. There's yeah. a trigger, yeah, you know, and that trigger is, uh, you know, uh, uh, distorted body image, strong mm -hmm. negative emotions, attempts to relieve it. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is strip away the attempts to avoid it and also correct the, the sort of, uh, and give them new ways to cope with these uh, very strong emotions. Mm -hmm. If I can ask a little bit about it, this is fascinating because when I was reading the literature that was published in 2000, I think there was a lot of confusion between what is an intervention, thinking of it as a transdiagnostic intervention versus a transdiagnostic process or a mechanism of change. So, for example, emotional regulation, I think it's, it's a process, but it's also an intervention, right? We can teach people to notice the emotions, name the emotions, notice the action urge that the emotion comes up with. But would it be fair to say that in your work, when you were developing the UP, you thought about this transdiagnostic process as a way in which people cope and relate to these internal experiences, and that will be a transdiagnostic process in your work. Is that fair? Yes, if it cuts across, uh, you know, multiple diagnoses. So we think it goes beyond that, you know, as, as you know. We think we've learned enough now that we need to get away from these very narrow diagnostic categories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Disorder and social anxiety disorder and depression, et cetera. And look at the overarching, we call higher order temperamental personality factors and actually direct our treatment towards those processes. Yeah. And so we now consider what we're doing as not necessarily treating depression or panic disorder or eating disorders, although we do that. Mm-hmm but really targeting the underlying neuroticism. Mm -hmm. And we are hoping, and we're currently researching, whether taking that approach actually helps people all across the board with their problems. And say, not just their, maybe not just their panic disorder or their OCD, mm -hmm. but does it help? Because most people who come in to see us, as you, again, you well know, because you see a lot of patients like this, 
most people have more than one problem. They'll have several problems, yes. uh, several different kinds of emotional disorders. They'll have a lot of problems with this. Mm -hmm. So can we, you know, get to the core of it and treat the whole underlying pathological process? So that's what we're attempting to do. If we can, yeah. and if other research supports this, then it would probably indicate it's time for a more radical revision of our diagnostic system. Yeah, yeah. So let's chat a little bit about if it's okay. And again, I very much appreciate this conversation. Um, I am a full-time psychologist, a full-time therapist. I breathe and live therapy from the moment I wake up until the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is true. Comorbidity is the norm and not the exception. My clients struggle with OCD. They also struggle with social anxiety, with depression. My clients with panic attack also have chronic worry. They have fears of public speaking, you name it. And when we go beyond topography or the diagnostic label and we look at the processes, we look more like rumination, experiential avoidance, cognitive avoidance, situational avoidance as a struggles, as a ways in which people are making the problem worse. Now, let me be a little bit picky. So my apologies in advance. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. I'm asking for permission here <laughs> to be a little bit sassy. So um, I just want to, for my own understanding and for our audience who is going to listen to our conversation, do you see any difference between what is called these days process-based therapy and the unified protocol? Are they the same? Are they different? Sure. Uh, process-based Therapy is a new, a new uh, kind of description of, of an approach developed by one of my former students, actually, Steve Hayes. Mm -hmm. And one of my current colleagues was also one of my former postdocs, uh, Stefan Hoffman, whose office is right down the hall, although he goes back and forth to Germany, where he, he also is located. So we've talked a lot about this, and we're really talking about the same thing. The unified mm -hmm. protocol is a process-based therapy mm -hmm. in that it is based on <clears throat> that kind of functional relationship we talked about where we're looking at the strong emotion and how they are coping with it. What's that? That's the process. Mm -hmm. And uh, how we have to look at how this occurs, the ways in which this occurs in each individual Mm -hmm. So we're in a very ideographic kind of way. We have to see, all right, how does this process manifest itself? How does it best manifest itself? Mm -hmm. And how can we, you know, identify that and, and deal with it in a way such that the treatment is personalized? Mm -hmm. And the Unified Protocol tries to do this also. It's true. You know, it takes into consideration the trigger of the emotions, the particular kinds of avoidance behavior, and attempts to personalize it, you know, to the individual. As you know, there's all, these kinds of avoidance behaviors are, are, are really uh, almost endless. We made up a long list of them. I think you have the, uh, you I know, have the list too, but there's things like procrastination, you know, uh, the drive towards the perfectionism, the rumination, suppression, distraction, uh, reassurance seeking. Mm -hmm. you know, all of these, uh, hypersomnia, sleeping too much, 
all of these are, uh, you know, forms or, or different kind of coping mechanisms. Some of them out of the awareness of patients. They yeah. may not really be aware they're doing it. If you call them unconscious, if, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, that we have to identify which ones are the patients using uh, and how can we help them to uh, really reorientate themselves and cope more adaptively. So it is a it is basically a process based therapy, as opposed to the types of treatments that are simply a one size fits all. Yeah, you know, without individual, uh, let's say, adaptation, without focusing on the actual underlying process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, one that's been evidence based, of course, mm -hmm. not just some you know an idea in somebody's head you know <laughs> about uh underlying conflicts or something but you know an evidence-based kind of process and how do we how do we change it uh, efficiently yeah thank you for clarifying that so the up the way that we think of it and it's true it's a process-based approach because it's yes. into processes now would you say and i'm sorry i'm going to ask a little bit about mid-level terms because i'm a clinician i want to understand that is a transdiagnostic process different than what we call a process of change? Or are they both the same? I think those are pretty much the same. I'd have to see the context in which the latter term is used. But uh, another term for it would be mechanisms. Yes. Mechanisms of action of treatment. Yes. That would be another term. That, that's how, that's what they mean when they say process-based therapy. What, what is the mechanism? What's the function? That's right. What's behind? So yeah, I think process-based change, uh, process-based therapy. Uh, yeah. And in the for the eating disorders, you look at this, you know, uh, body image distortion and uh, mm -hmm. the variety of uh, kind of predictable behaviors that go with it. Uh, OCD. You, you look at, you know, all the kind of magical rituals. Uh, which are meant to supposedly reduce the the uh, contamination or the uh, the, the uh, other sorts of uh, processes induced by these bizarre thoughts. Uh, in generalized anxiety disorder, you, you typically get uh, the reassurance seeking and the worry. And we know that worry actually is a way of diverting the brain's attention from the affect itself. Right. But it becomes, it never results, unlike normal worry, we all worry to some extent. That's a good thing. That's so right. We think planning for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, but unlike normal worry, the called pathological worry in generalized anxiety disorder is like a loop tape. Mm -hmm. It never ends. It never results in any kind of a solution or any kind of a plan. It's just a way of distracting the brain from experiencing the negative effects. Very much a a uh, left brain kind of function to distract oneself from the affect. Yeah, it feels like we're problem solving, but we're actually looping and looping, right? And that's how we're avoiding the distress. So yep. if I ask a little bit more. In process-based therapy, there is also this addition of evolution science. I was thinking of evolution as multi-level, multi-dimensional frame to understand human behavior. In your opinion, what is the role of evolution science in process-based therapies? You have seen the field moving through different waves. So I'm curious how you see that today. 
Well, the the um, they could better, you know, Steve Hayes and Stefan Hoffman could better better answer that question because they they talk about the the, the sort of multi-dimensional uh, hierarchy of causal relationships mm -hmm. and evolution, obviously. Uh, uh, evolutionary forces come into play in terms of ways of dealing with strong emotional responses, which in themselves are evolutionarily favored. Mm -hmm. uh, the way emotion works, again, as you as you well know, but the audience may, may not uh, uh, fully fully uh, be aware, appreciate the the uh, uh, we experience emotions to motivate us to do something mm -hmm. that has value in our lives. Mm -hmm. We already talked about fear. Mm -hmm. It helps us escape danger. If someone doesn't experience fear, like people who have what we call psychopathic personalities, mm -hmm. occasionally don't experience anxiety or fear, they die young. Because they, they, you know, they don't have a mechanism to help them avoid uh, threats. The thrill seekers, you know, are in this category. So, you know, all of these uh, strong emotions. Uh, you look at the positive emotions, mm -hmm. you know, uh, joy or romantic love, the attraction. You know, obviously that's important for the propagation of the species. So all of these uh, emotions are motivating us to do something. Mm -hmm. And what happens when we engage in what we call the emotion-driven behavior mm -hmm. is that it then relieves the emotion. So you can look at it from that evolutionary point of view. You know, mm -hmm. that's a function. Mm -hmm. uh, and it fits in with, with uh, you know, what we've been talking about. Um, but the, um, you know, what we're trying to identify we don't necessarily uh, operate at the level of evolutionary function. or And while we attend to some of the neurobiological functions that are ongoing, you know, we're, we're dealing pretty much with the presenting behavioral and cognitive sorts of issues that reflect all of these processes. Yeah. 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 If I can ask a little bit more, as a clinician, as a person that sees clients every day, does process-based therapy changes how I conduct an assessment when a new client comes to my oh. office and how I treat clients? Well, uh, the, the um, that's a very good uh, question. And, you know, these, these uh, approaches are still kind of in development. So we have recommendations like in our, our therapist guides for the unified protocol. Mm -hmm. You know, we have chapters on assessment and it, it talks about, uh, you know, discusses ways to get at these functional relationships, mm -hmm. you know, and better identify the kinds of triggers and the types of uh, strong negative emotions or the mix of strong negative emotions and the, the, the methods that the individuals, the patients in this case, are utilizing to mitigate Mm -hmm. You know, these emotions, most of which would be uh, inappropriate. So we put a lot of emphasis on assessing those kinds of uh, relationships. At the same time, you know, in the world we live in, 
Mm -hmm. You and I as clinicians mm -hmm. uh, who often, and, they, and our patients who often have to file for insurance, mm -hmm. uh, it's still important to come up with a diagnosis. The yeah. diagnostic system hasn't changed yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and and uh, most record keeping systems, including third party payers, you know, require that we establish a diagnosis. So we still do that, mm -hmm. but we're more concerned with the uh, again the transdiagnostic process. Yeah, if it's okay, I just have another question. You have been practicing for years. You have been doing a lot of research. You have published so many books. You have contributed to the dissemination of, of evidence-based treatments that work and can make a difference in a person's life. And you have seen all these waves. The first wave of behaviorists with a Skinner, Pavlov, and all the crowd. The second wave that you have been a big part of, and we have the third wave. Where do you see that field going? Where do you see evidence-based <laughs> going? Yeah, I'm just curious. What's your That's thing? That's a good question. Uh, that's a very good question. I have been around for all three waves. Uh, I love it. I love it. You know, uh, and I was never a big, I'll tell you the truth. And mm -hmm. I, I say this to my good friend, uh, Steve Hayes as well. I've never been a big waiver. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think it's uh, very important how these things are labeled. Uh, I think that our our research is is uh, proceeding and has been proceeding. That's a good thing. It's the ways of science. Mm. Uh, we learn more all the time. Uh, we we started out uh, focusing on behavior pretty uh, you know uh, exclusively. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s, uh, it became clear that. Uh, Cognition really is a behavior and is a very closely mm -hmm. related part of behavior. Uh, in the 80s, we began to pay, you know, I, at least our group, began to pay more attention to emotion and affect mm -hmm. uh, and ways of dealing with it. And uh, I guess the third wave came in, you know, shortly after that in terms of more appropriate ways of dealing with emotion in terms of uh, acceptance and exposure. But uh, it seems to me to be all of a piece. It's all the advancement of our knowledge as we look more broadly and more deeply into the kinds of issues with which we deal and try to come up with more successful treatments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think the process-based therapies are going to surpass traditional or specific therapy packages that we have, like DBT, CBT, even ACT? Is that where we're moving? Well, we're, we're finding out, uh, now you're going to get me in trouble with some of my, my good clients, <laughs> but, uh, It's all good. It's all right. That's the point of a good podcast, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, I, think, I think we're finding out that as we identify more clearly the common processes, mm -hmm. uh, we're finding out that many of these approaches have much more in common than they do what defines them. So DBT, for example, my good friend and colleague, Marshall Linehan, who we uh, were fellow travelers for decades mm -hmm. in uh, the CBT kind of revolution, you know, evidence-based treatment revolution. And she was very creative in coming up with DBT for the most severe kinds of patients you'd ever want to see. Most people wouldn't want to see them. 
because they're, they're so severe. But she stuck with it and came up with something. But what we've learned really is that DB, uh, uh, borderline personality disorder, which is the target of the original target of DBT, is not a personality disorder. It's an emotional disorder. Mm -hmm. It's maybe the queen of emotional disorders. Mm -hmm. Severe emotional dysregulation and all of the uh, splitting and stuff that goes along with it. Repression. We have written the paper conceptualizing it as an emotional disorder and that it is very much a target for the unified protocol. Mm -hmm. And we have data, we published data showing that we can treat um, borderline personality disorder with unified protocol. So I'm just taking this example of DBT. Mm -hmm. So Marsha and I talk, and Marsha was a part of that, some of that research, by the way. So we, we really collaborated on that. So what Marsha thinks, and we tend to agree with her, is that many of the principles of DBT and the UP are very similar. Mm -hmm. But DBT is much more complex mm -hmm. you know, in if it's going to be purely administered. And we think, and we, along with Marsha, that for the, very, the, the top 10% on the severity threshold of patients with borderline probably need the full package, mm -hmm. you know, and all that goes with it. But the bottom, certainly 80%, and this is what we've been dealing with, they can, re they can respond just as well to uh, the UP as somebody with panic disorder or depression. So they, they have more in common, act the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you could, you could say, Stevie Hayes even says, well, the UP is really an act therapy. I don't think the labels are helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they obscure the underlying scientific processes that we're revealing mm -hmm. as time goes on. And I think you ask what the future will hold. Yeah. You know, I think we'll come to a greater understanding of the specific mechanisms. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the uh, mechanisms that we're targeting and the strategies the core strategies for attacking those mechanisms, you know, across the board. And it may differ somewhat from, you know, one set of problems like emotional disorders versus say sleep disorders, which are a heterogeneous group of disorders like mm -hmm. Alison Harvey and her group doing brilliant work in that area. Uh, psychotic disorders, you know, obviously, uh, uh, different set of problems so you know the, the, the it'll it'll i think it'll it's uh, becoming clearer it will fall out and research will help us organize these things better mm. years go by mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are learning as we go we're learning as we go yeah. i think what is clear is that i know for me as a clinician has made a huge difference to a step back from this diagnostic level looks at what drives problematic behaviors and think of this process is not too much as dichotomous constructs of that person either has it or not, but as degrees of responses and check how they are affecting a person's life. So thank you for all the work you have been doing all these years. I have been following your work for quite a while. So it's such a, a special treat to have a chance to chat with you about all these hot topics these days. <laughs> well, thank you for your kind words. And it's been a, a pleasure to be on your, your podcast. Thank you so much. 
for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you are feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon.